Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My guest today has an interesting background from being selected to be a part of the U.S. Rugby Union at the age of 14, to running kitchens at a Michelin star restaurant, to real estate sales, to cannabis entrepreneur. He's been working as an executive advisor in the cannabis industry since 2012, specializing in cultivation, manufacturing, and product development. To date, he's built 15 new facilities and driven over $250 million in revenue for nine different companies. Sage Wynn, welcome to Let's Be Blunt with Montel, sir. How's it going, man? Going great. Thanks so much for being here, my friend. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in uh, Frederick, Maryland. It's a city that's about 45 minutes north of D.C., 45 I'm, minutes I'm a Maryland boy, so I know exactly where you grew up. But, oh, yeah. nice. Where are you from? I'm from, I was originally born in Baltimore, Cherry Hill, grew up in the county, uh, northern Anne Arundel County, a little place called Mars Hill. So uh, that was my hangout until I left and went into the military. So uh, when in your time back then was... How was cannabis perceived in your family and in the community where you grew up? Well, uh, so my grandpa was in the military. So as you can imagine, like he was definitely not, you know, beloved in the family. But my mom was kind of like a hippie child of like the 60s. So a little bit more receptive at my mom's level. But um, yeah, and then like the community, I mean, like it was like kind of back during like 2000s where it's like not well understood it's like kind of still like i mean it was just like weed it's not like we had strains like we do now like sour yeah, the war on drug was at its right right yeah 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 so um it's just really interesting to just see how far it's come in just sort of like a short period of time it's kind of funny <laughs> oh, no, and what was your experience like what was your first experience like with cannabis Oh, um, just a group of friends. We were at a party, you know, got introduced to it. I always like was curious about it because I was a big hip hop fan growing up, but um, got introduced to it, you know, got high for the first time. And it was like, I was like, man, this is awesome. <laughs> uh, I understand. How were you? Teenage years? Teenage. I think I was like 12 or 13, maybe. Gotcha. Sure, sure, sure. So you uh, just a recreational cannabis enthusiast for a while. Right? Were you doing a lot, doing a little bit, a couple times a week? uh i mean probably like every day like when i was like kind of going through high school and then like you know like my rugby kind of experience comes in and i mean as you can imagine rugby is a pretty rough sport so rugby players are pretty big users of cannabis to you know heal some of their their bumps and bruises and wounds i, I mean it was it a, I, I i don't remember rugby being a big sport in maryland in a lot of the high schools did you join a league or something or was it part of your high so, school so my dad, I grew up like going to rugby matches, watching my dad play and like all of like him and my group, my mom's group of friends, like when we were younger, all like rugby teams, they're like these like close knit, it's almost like a fraternity in a way, but like, it's definitely a European sport for sure. Right, <laughs> um, yeah, not yeah. Super popular. I mean, it's more of like the private schools and there's like some like local unions, but, um, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean like the rugby community is like, you know, at least like the rugby community I grew up in, like everybody like grew their own. There's a lot of homegrown stuff flowing around, mm -hmm. but <laughs> and a lot of people, a lot of people were using it and not knowingly using it medically in a sense for pain and other things. Yep, yep, yep. And then even like when I got onto the national team, you know, like a lot of the guys from California that like I encountered were using it the same exact way. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And so now you did that for years. And then uh, what, did you go to college? I did. I went to journalism school at the University of Maryland for about a year. Found out very quickly that I was not super interested in college and then dropped out and moved to California. <laughs> gotcha. And when you moved out there, did you go out there knowing that you were going to get interested in culinary arts and become a chef? Or was it you just trying to find your way? I've just always loved to cook. I've just always found it fascinating. It's kind of like all things. It's just like creating something in like the real world from like just an idea that's like really attractive. Um, but I didn't go out there thinking I was going to do that. I kind of like went out there like to go to a rugby academy to hopefully, you know, propel me into like the professional leagues. The academy I was in had uh, connections with like the Italian professional leagues. Mm -hmm. So like that was like really why I went out there is I wanted to like go pro in rugby. And then I actually got an injury. I popped a couple of discs in my back and you know, I was like, I got to do something else. <laughs> I can't yeah, keep it, doing this to my body. <laughs> it is a rough sport, man. I remember, you know, they played rugby. I went to the Naval Academy and rugby was there. I went out, uh, I, I went out once for like an intramural game and I was like, are you kidding me? No, 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 no. I'm out in, I'm out in. And, and I remember the day that I went out to play, it happened to be this really violent rainy day and the rain just stopped. And so we were literally doing this in mud. And, you know, you, I know, you know, from rugby, you're trying to dig in and, man, your feet are digging into the mud. And I thought, yeah. somebody will hit me and I'm going to break an ankle. I'm not doing this. I'm, stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. So when, when, you, when you pushed away from the sport, what was your first experience with trying to dabble in the culinary arts? Because like yourself, I'm also a child that, you know, of the, I'm a lot older than you, but you know, I grew up in a home where, dude, I started messing around at the stove when I was five, uh, oh, yeah. six. I started cooking. I mean, literally, because my parents both worked. And if you wanted to eat something before you went to school, you know, you had to be good and good. Because I had older brothers and sisters, and they were all in it for themselves. You know what I mean? My sister would go down, make herself yeah. a big sandwich and leave. And I'm like, what's up with me? And so, <laughs> you know, like, hey, you're in the refrigerator. Figure out how to do it. So I went over and started cooking, you know, probably. And I'm telling you, I started really cooking five six seven started making hamburgers at eight you know what i mean mm -hmm. so um you know when you came home from school you want something to eat if you're going to do it you better get it yourself right yep yeah so i um i got introduced or i got interested in cooking when i was probably like around like 10. Mm -hmm. my first love was barbecue because i just liked eating it number one and two it was just like you just sit outside and you just you know cook something for hours so it's like an activity you can do outside and just sit outside and especially if you're, if you're tapping a little blunt while you're at it right oh absolutely yeah i used to sit outside with this little you know remember those little like vapor boxes it's like yep. the first version of the vaporizer it had like yep. the little yep. hose on it i had yep. one of those and just sit outside out back during during high school barbecue but cooking yeah that just cooking for friends and family oh yeah all the time it's just like something i always do it's just dinner parties all the time. I mean, me and my wife are having a uh, Christmas party tomorrow. I'm going to cook up a bunch of delicious stuff tomorrow. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like, yeah, that just like transition. And then like, you know, that interest kept on growing. And then when I was out in California, I get introduced to like, it was kind of like towards the end of the rugby stuff. Like I was like, man, I got to hang these cleats up. I got to stop doing this to myself. Like, what do I do next? Like, and I was like, okay, I read Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential and that like changed my life. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go try to do this cooking thing for a little bit while I was still doing like cannabis stuff. Cause I got into the cannabis industry while I was in Santa Barbara 
Um, and when, what was the first? What was that first foray like in Santa Barbara? Were you working in as a bartender, working in a dispensary? What? Um, so this is like Prop Two Fifteen days. So it was kind of like the Wild Wild West. Um, I was working as like kind of like a broker. I had I was just kind of just solo entrepreneur situation. Bought up north in the Northern California farms around Sacramento, and then in the Emerald Triangle, and then I brought it down to Santa Barbara. And uh, me and a couple buddies had a delivery service, and then that's when I actually got introduced into extracts as well. Um, it was the first time I've, I have seen or heard of hash and I smoked it for the first time. I like mm-hmm. blew my head off, but like, <laughs> right, <sure>. uh, <laughs> it's strong. Um, but yeah, I mean, we did that for a little bit and then, you know, kind of like took its course. I wanted to come back to the East coast and then ended up coming back to the East coast, get into the kitchen world. And I, I describe it to like all, all my friends and family is like, my cannabis business was designed to support my cooking habit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't make anything in like Michelin star restaurants, even if you get to like the top, you know, like you're working 120 hour weeks. And like You're not like, so, uh, you know, you're using cannabis to augment, you know, your salary from, you know, the lack of being paid well in a restaurant, but were you actually using cannabis and infusing cannabis into some of the recipes that you were doing? I mean, I've done a lot of that. I actually don't really like to infuse food directly. I like to pair it kind of like wine. Yeah, you know, I think it works better. Well, well, not only that, but I I happen to think that there are a lot of people out here who think that they may have the skills that you have as a chef and they put their cannabis in recipes that then they burn off all the extra active ingredients. Yep. Exactly. (laughs) Most people who who dabble in cooking with cannabis don't recognize that, you know, anything above 107, 108 degrees, you're burning off some of the terpenes, you're burning off all the flavonoids, you're burning off some of the other monocannabinoids. So you're really not taking advantage of the cannabis, though it will get you high and don't necessarily do anything else for you. Yeah, it's not as fun, you know, like you're missing all like the the good stuff in cannabis, which is the terpenes, which is like, you know, all the the good stuff that, you know, makes the strain a strain. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so you, you did that for a little bit while you were on the East coast, separated mm-hmm. two, and then you decided to shift more into the cannabis industry. Tell me about that. Well, like, I think in high school, I like realized, I was like, man, this is probably going to be pretty cool. This is like before like anything really existed. I mean, I graduated in high school in 09. So, um, but I like, I had the thought back then I was like, man, I want to work in the cannabis industry in some way or some form. Um, and I'd never really got like a solid opportunity until, um, I kind of decided to stop cooking just because it's such an intense, like lifestyle that's hard on you. So, um, and I was like, what's next? I was like, okay, let me like kick the tires on this cannabis thing again. See if like, I can't like, you know, like find my way into the legal industry. And I found my way in via holistic industries, which was really cool. Um, I joined them when they were super young. Uh, they're still just in DC. They're just about to open up their first Maryland facility because they they were in on the first round of Maryland with the, the super expensive round to get in. Um, built out a big facility. So me and a couple of the um, kind of technical people at Holistic just 
took that lab in DC and, you know, we ended up building out quite a few labs over my time there. And that's like, kind of like my real introduction into like what I do now, which is, you know, design facilities, I build them and then I operate them and then do quite a bit of product development. And that's kind of like where I really first started to, to dip my toe in um, and kind of like understand what that looks like. Well, you're working with a company that's called Ethos, right? Which is in Pennsylvania, yep. Maryland and Massachusetts. Tell me about the, that company. So Ethos is cool. Ethos is a young MSO um, backed by um, some pretty wealthy individuals from Philadelphia um, trying to like basically take the MSO model and, and you know, innovate at the, the actual business model a little bit and, you know, really try to like be creative and, you know, you know, be able to gain competitive advantages and, you know, which is starting to become a crowded market. And so we have two, we have a state of the art, like Dutch style greenhouse right outside of Philadelphia. And then my role there is to build out the processing side. So that's everything downstream from flour, including edibles, vapes, concentrates, that kind of thing. So we have that in Philadelphia. We also have um, a cultivation processing and dispensary right outside of Boston. And then we also have a cultivation out in Ohio. And then we have retail in all three of those states. We actually divested from Maryland recently. I think that was like just six to 12 months ago. Yeah. Well, I, I happen to be, I have products on the shelves in mass right now. I'm getting products on the shelves uh, in Georgia. Yeah, pretty soon. Georgia is a very unique state. Um, yeah, it is. It definitely is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Georgia's got, most people don't know, we'll talk about it. Georgia has no flour, no vape. They only have what they claim. They they also say they don't have any edibles. However, they have tinctures, tablets, and pills. So don't they go in your mouth? That's called edible. Yeah. Uh, but you know they're going to get to that. And yeah. recently, Georgia, you know, was the first state to authorize independent dispensaries to dispense cannabis products. They're using the independent. They're not only using the vertical licenses come with a certain number of dispensaries under that name, but then they have independent pharmacists that they're allowing, they were as state law was going to allow to do this. And then the DEA came down on the head about three weeks ago, uh, issuing all these warning letters, letters to all these independent pharmacists, telling them if you go down that path, we will shut you down. And it's crazy. And at the same time, at the same time, they allow all these bodegas, that's all I'm going to call them, all over the state, from gas stations to you name it, claim that they are dispensaries or they have the ability to distribute, and they're just—it's the wild, wild west because they're putting and they're and they're throwing out a lot of uh, hemp-based products with a lot of THC eight and ten, yep. and all this bullshit. Excuse my mouth. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's my go ahead. I was, I was just going to comment. I was just like, it's wild how like the hemp bill is like open the door to like all this, like kind of like, I kind of think of it like synthetic weed because like how you get there is like, there's a process to it. And I mean, that I, not I, for me, but <laughs> I, I'm going to tell you, I would not put any of that trash in my body. If you paid me and there are ignorant people out here who are trying their best to sell this on people and people don't understand most of the chemicals they use to make it comes from underneath your sink. Yep. Yep. It's pretty terrifying. <laughs> it is pretty terrifying. And, you know, that brings me to the question of, you know, I mean, what have been some of the challenges that you've faced getting in this business? Oh, I mean, all of it is around probably the license acquisition part of it. 
Um, I think license acquisition and then like the intensity of like how compliant you need to be to some of these regulations is probably the two biggest challenges. The work itself, like building the facility, you know, getting operational, that stuff is like pretty straightforward. That's the stuff that I love to do. But like some, like, especially in like a state like Pennsylvania, they have this like very like lengthy product approval process where like, it's not like, like even if you're going to like make a minor change to like a bake cart, which is like very straightforward, right? Like you have to submit that. And like, I've had a few of these products get hang, hung up for like six months, which is like, if you're like trying to plan and run a business, like six month delay on like launching a product is like, it's just brutal. <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been crazy because that's the same attitude that they have in Georgia. I mean, literally every individual SKU has to be, you know, approved and the packaging for it has to be approved and it's all got to be done. And, you know, you, if you're thinking, well, they just approved this one, but they, why didn't they approve that one? There's only five more milligrams. Oh my goodness. Yep. Like it's crazy. Right. Yeah. It's like really uneven too. It's like up to the interpretation and like the mood of like the regulator at that time. <laughs> right. and, and, and it's a regulator who probably doesn't know a damn thing about cannabis, you know, in some Absolutely. Ways. or, or <laughs> one, that one paper that they read thinking that made them an expert. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people actually have this false uh, perception that, you know, if they get a license, then they that license comes with them being allowed to print money. And the reality mm -hmm. is that there are so many challenges in this business. It can really take years to realize you know, a minimum profit. Yep. Yeah. And like, I think it's funny because like the perception, um, the perception of like, like the cannabis operators that you're just like printing money all the time but like really it's like this is a pretty difficult business it is like you have to be like not only do you have to be like a good business operator you have to be super compliant because you, you get whacked on a compliance thing like it's either fine you get shut down you have to do a product recall like all of those things are like very costly and like that's just like the compliance side like when it comes to like making sure like your products are like you know, across different markets and like all the different packaging that you need to do for each different product and each different market. There's like different labeling. It's it's just, it gets to be a lot. And like the complexity just like increases and increases and increases. So I don't know. I don't know how bad it is in Pennsylvania and in, oh, I do know how bad it is in mass, but, and I know in some places like California and other places, I mean, literally you can have a, change in your packaging from one little interstate municipality to the next mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it's it's just gets intense and then like you're asking your packaging like vendors to like take on some of the the brunt of that work and like sometimes they get it wrong i mean everybody's human like you know stuff happens but um yeah, just the layers of complexity. I think that's like probably one of the biggest challenges. It's just like the regulations forcing these like layers of complexity, which introduces like layers of complexity into your like operation. And then, you know, like you, you, we're all human. We can only handle so much before we, you know, just start to capitulate. So absolutely. And you know what's even crazier is that people don't understand there are so many regulations. I I, I can walk into CVS down the street. And pick up a bottle of oxycodone. And yeah, I got a sound little thing at the counter, but I walk out with a bag. The bag's not staple closed. The bag's yeah. not, you know, <laughs> the bag's not in in uh, well, whatever you call, you want to call regular pharmaceuticals child proof. Yeah, whatever. 
Um, you know, but that's not childproof. Yet I can walk into a dispensary in certain states, and I'm telling you, the packaging is six layers deep. Yep. Yeah, that's another thing with the cannabis industry too. That's like interesting. It's just like for like a what you'd think like a product kind of like born out of like the hippie culture, right? It's like sustainable, like, you know, as much as possible. Like our packaging is just horribly not sustainable. It is a waste. There are so many, I'm telling you, man, I've, I've been with you because I've, I've, I've literally uh, had product in the marketplace in Oregon and California and Arizona and Nevada. I stopped that madness because literally from one municipality in California to the next one next door, from one little town here to this one next door, that one may not even have any legal cannabis. Now, how do you have legal cannabis in the whole state, yet this 50 square mile radius, you can't have legal cannabis, and you got to drive through that 50 mile radius to get to the next one, which is legal. And most, most people aren't even paying attention to the fact that, yeah, we have 38 states in the District of Columbia that have legal cannabis, but in every single one of those states, people are still getting arrested. Yeah, exactly. It's That's one of the worst parts of this. It's yeah. just like, yeah, because like a lot of like, because like, I mean, obviously I've, I've been around cannabis for a while and like I definitely worked in the black market for a while. And it's like, you know, that's like where a lot of the people like, you know, my contemporaries and like colleagues and stuff, that's like where they, you know, cut their teeth. And like, that's where they like really learn their chops of like how this business works. And like, I mean, they're seen in California, like some of these operators are turning back to the black market because it's just easier. You know, Correct. yeah, because they're more straightforward. Yeah, <laughs> I knock on the door. The person who answers the door to receive their packages they just ordered from me is don't care whether or not it's in seventy-five layers of cardboard. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and which you know, I mean, which is a, there's a testament to this on the fact that what in 2021 they estimated that there was 25 billion dollars worth of legal cannabis sold in America, but there was about 60 to 75 billion dollars worth of gray and black market cannabis sold. So cannabis is outselling any individual product in America, including milk, eggs. Uh, uh, how about uh, uh, energy drinks? All these things. You know, I can walk into a to a, a bodega or walk into a Seven Eleven and pull an energy drink off the shelf that has so much caffeine in it, it might kill one or two people. Yet <laughs> it only has a pop top. Yet I go in and get a cannabis drink and it's got this weird little mechanism that I got to mess with for hours to figure out how to open just to get my drink. Yeah. I like to joke that it's adult proof too. <laughs> yeah. You know, too, adult proof too. So what are some of the best things and the most, uh, the, the things you love the most about this industry? I, I really love like how diverse the, the use group is or like the consumer group is that likes cannabis. Like you have everything from like a 85 year old grandma to, you know, like 22 year old Gen Z. I mean, everybody loves cannabis. Like, and the people who don't like, I mean, maybe they just haven't found the right like dose for them or the right like thing for them. I, I, I like to describe it as like, it's like the plant dog version. It's like, you know, human's best friend, but the plant version. <laughs> yep. And, you know, what's really funny is that when you look at it nationally, I mean, I think for the first time uh, ever, polls have come out that, you know, I think it's plus 90 percent now. People in America believe that medical cannabis should be available. And over 70 percent, it's like 71, right skating on the edge, believe that cannabis should be legal. This is all of America. And the only thing that, you know, the right and the left seem to have in common is the fact that there's a lot of weed being smoked because when, when they, they, they invaded the Capitol on the 6th, 
You know, there was a lot of smoke being blown up in the air as people were tearing yeah. their walls. Really? Yep. Yep. Yeah, it was interesting. I was talking to a business partner of mine earlier today, and he he was poking around the internet. I think he came across some sort of like study or outlook that said that um, they think that uh, cannabis is going to overtake alcohol in like the next like 10 years. It's like in terms of like usage and especially with like the younger generations, like Gen Z and like younger millennials, I think. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I, I think we I, might see cameras yeah, take over. <laughs> I, I kind of agree with you. And I think, you know, we've, we're, you're noticing around the world, wine sales all over the world are down. People don't know this. All over. I'm talking Italian wines, French wines, American wines, all over the world. Part of that has to do with, you know, whatever you want to call this weather bullshit problems that we have, whether it be global warming or whatever, there's been impact on places that were traditional places where vines and grapevines could grow. Now they can't grow there anymore. And so that's kind of limited the production. But at the same time, that limited production is following in suit with the limited consumption. People are turning away from alcohol. And, you know, I think uh, COVID had a lot to do with that because, you know, there were a lot of people who sat at home and knocked off a fifth of vodka and realized that they couldn't move the next day. And those same <laughs> people then, sat around and hit a blunt and went, hmm, this is cold. I can get up in the morning. And yeah. so now all of a sudden, you know, I think there's more and more. But, you know, all we have to do, I think, or not all we have to do, but it's going to be, well, put your crystal ball on. What do you think? And when do you think it's going, we're going to see some significant changes on the, at the federal level for allowing cannabis use? And from either, you know, whatever you want to call it, the scheduling. Yeah. Whatever. I don't know. I, I always go back and forth because like sometimes you like there's like some like tailwinds and then all of a sudden there's headwinds and like I don't know. I feel like we just have to get like a favorable administration in there as like president and then like you know because I don't think Biden's it. You know. Oh no! I, 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 Biden. I'm sorry, Biden and Harris talked a whole bunch of shit before the election last time. In the first hundred days, we're going to take a look and examine and try to take. <laughs> I was like, I want to reach to the screen and smack him upside the face because that was way past a hundred days, and there's yep. still, but we still got this clown walking around saying, "Well, I think the cannabis is an uh, 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 introductory drug to further drug." It's like, stop! <laughs> it's like they just they just say a bunch of stuff to get elected, and then once they get in office, they just have their own agenda. But <laughs> and we, yeah, we and we may end up seeing. The same thing happened this go round. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of smack talk because, you know, both sides understand he who, remember, let's go back to January 6th. January 6th, a lot of people went and yep. stormed the Capitol. We need to change that, that, that. Taking a hit. And these are the people who are supposedly against everything. So you know, <laughs> the truth of the matter is cannabis, just like it always has been, it's the great uniter rather than the great divider. The only thing that the North and the South had during in common during the Civil War is that their uniforms were all made from hemp. The only thing that, you know, the, the U.S. and uh, the, the, the fledgling United States and the Brits had uh, in common during the Revolutionary War was that their uniforms were made from hemp. Their tents were made from hemp. Their robes were made from hemp. They were smoking hemp even in those uh, uh, little encampments. They know they were. And so it's, it's, it's so uh, ridiculously asinine that we're living at a time where we have to live to wait for those to die to, to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I like, it's just, I just don't really see like a clear 
you know, there's no like clear path to like federal legalization. And it's like also too, it's just like what happens when they actually do that. <laughs> I mean, like yeah, government isn't isn't known for smoothly rolling out anything. So yeah, I'm wondering. The sky ain't falling. <laughs> I've been looking at the 38 states and District of Columbia, and there still happens to be clouds in the sky and sun up there. It didn't fall, yeah. chicken little, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, what's next? What, what what are you planning? What's what's in the future? So um, I think in the future. I think the goal is just to like kind of like you know kind of capture some of the the so like the entire East Coast is going wreck right now, right? And so like it's, one is awesome, especially like New York. It's just like kind of like capturing some of that, you know, really like scratching that entrepreneurial itch and like getting into some of these states and like providing you know the service of like contract manufacturing and then you know putting some brands out in some of these states and just doing it successfully just like trying to be a good operator good you know good neighbor to all the other cannabis companies out there i think there is a thing with like not to like kind of get sidetracked but like i do feel like there is an issue of just like cannabis operators working together where like if we like come together a little bit more like other industries it's like known that like you you don't you're not going to be the only one right let me tell you i will be friends with everybody right (laughs) you and i are on the exact same page my friend for some reason we are still caught up in trying to see if we can beat up the guy down the block and make sure we get a penny more than they got and in this industry where you know a rising tide lifts all boats you know I, I, you don't see Eli Lilly and Pfizer fighting each other. Why? Because they understand that they've got a product that everybody needs and let's work together. That's the reason why they lobby at the level that they do in Washington, D.C. to keep control over uh, all the, the things that they produce that really are killing people and the government lets them get away with it. So yeah. the truth of the matter is when the second that this industry starts to realize that we have to come together, form a union that can propel us all forward, we're going to see this industry change. But right now, while we still have all these B2B conferences around the country trying to outsell the next guy for the next guy for a pipe or a tube, we're never going to get there. Yeah. It's like everybody crowds themselves out. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, at any point in time, you know, in the future, you want to have some conversations about some products and some products. I, I, I think I have and have been uh, on the front end of a lot. And long before people were talking about CBD back in 2001, I was hunting down CBD plants in Northern California. Awesome. Long before anybody wow. ever bought, mentioned the word CBG, I was already on that stick. I'm, I, you, you can see me speaking in 2007 and eight on CBG. And yeah. I was literally trying to convince this industry to move into minor cannabinoids back in 2009 and 10. So yeah. we're finally getting wow. there. I have a lot that uh, we can offer, so I'll have my office reach out to you because if you want to work on some synergistic things, we're already in states together. Let's start putting them together. Yeah, let's do it. I, I'd love to talk. Absolutely. Uh, that would be fun. In, that's a long time ago to be in minor cannabinoids. <laughs> I know. You know what, what, was, what was very funny is that you know when I first came out, which was back in 2002, I did a lot of research back then looking into – the federal government's own application for uh, their patent that they filed in 2001 and a half for uh, CBD. And back then, Meshulam had already been talking about all the minor cannabinoids, stuff that everybody in America, boom, went overhead. We were still trying to grow CBD out of plants up until about 2007. So we finally got back on a stick. And now 
you know, I, most of the formulations that I have have combinations of THC and CBD at various proportions with proprietary terpenes to go along with that to elicit a response. So, you know, um, uh, I think the industry is starting to catch up in some ways. In some ways, they're not. I mean, I just had a really great conversation with a doctor who's a cancer doctor who um, has been working on trying to educate, you know, as much as we can about the fact that, you know, honestly, yes, THC, CBD, they're perfect, but that's just a tip of the iceberg. You know, we know that there is well of the contrary to popular belief of there being 60 to 70 cannabinoids. We know that there's probably about 160, could be up to 300. And there's over 500 constituent parts to this plant that we don't even have the slightest idea what they do, except for those who have been experimenting with them and figuring out that, yes, you can elicit a particular response by utilizing some of this. So, yeah, it's it's really cool. It's really powerful stuff, too. Like if you get the right combination of CBN and terpenes and the right THC dose in there, like yeah. <laughs> next time you go into the mass area, look for my my line, which is inspired by Montel. I'm in a a, a lot of different uh, dispensers up there. I have a I have one formulation out right now that's got its own particular terpenes that go along with it. That is CBD, THC, CBC, and CBN. That's my sleep that has proprietary terpenes along with that, that helps to elicit that response. I actually call that brand snooze. Now I call it snooze because it'll help to put you to sleep with no, no question whatsoever. However, if you hit it in the middle of the day, it can help modulate when you hit something that made you a little too high and give you a nice little bring it down, but still maintain, you know what I mean? So it's cool. And, and, and it's not me talking. I mean, I have people, you know, I, I go up and do pop-ups in the mass area. I was just there last week. And, you know, the consumers come back to it. They come back specifically asking for one of my particular formulations. I have a, a energy, calm, chill, and a snooze right now. And, uh, you know, at some point in time, we ought to sit down and chat about it, my friend, because I got I, – there's so much more where that came from. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I'd love to chat about it. That's awesome. Absolutely. Let's do that for sure. Well, anything else you want to add, my friend? Oh, uh, thanks for having me on. This has been great. No, for sure. Thanks for coming on. And at any point in time in the future, if you want to come back, share some knowledge, you know, uh, uh, download some truth to some people, we'd love to have you back. Okay. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right, Sage, my friend, you be well. You stay well. Take care of yourself. Have a really wonderful holiday. Have a safe new year. Yeah. Because watch out, because, man, there's some idiots running around <laughs> on this planet. Yeah. We know that. And, and hopefully we can, we can help introduce them to some cannabis so they chill out. Yep, I agree. <laughs> Absolutely, my friend. Will you be well? You take care. And for all of you out there, make sure you tune in to the next episode of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. 
Check out a new episode every Monday.